1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode I'm excited to say we've got Professor David O'Keefe back on the podcast. He's a brilliant Second World War historian and he's going to take us through the events that happened after D-Day. All of this week we've had special episodes that looked at what happened before D-Day on the day itself and now David takes us through those pivotal 76 days until the breakout into the rest of Europe. We've got to remember it wasn't just that fierce battle on the Beaches and then breaking through into the local towns, but it carried on with a war of attrition and maneuvering for those 70 plus days. David is the author of a new book called Seven Days in Hell that follows a Canadian regiment through that period and I would argue it completely rewrites our understanding of that time because it shows just how ferocious that fighting was. Truly a war of attrition, perhaps more akin to the First World War than how we'd imagine the Second. So here he is, Professor David O'Keefe on After D-Day. Hi, Dave. Welcome back onto the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing fine. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm in the States at the moment. Where are you in the world? I
2: am a little bit north of you. I'm just outside of Quebec City, actually, today. You've caught me up at the cottage. I'm just outside one of the biggest military bases in Canada, a place called Valcartier. So if you hear any rumbling in the back, it's because they're actually firing off their 155mm howitzers today. So it kind of adds to our conversation, I would say.
1: Well, yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, it'll add a little bit of authenticity to what we're talking about because yesterday was the anniversary of D-Day and those pivotal opening moments of a new campaign, a new front on the war 77 years ago. But this was just the start of the Normandy campaign. So tell us, what were the overall plans here? What was meant to happen on day one? And then how was
2: it meant to play out from there? Well, I think you put it pretty succinctly in the sense that this was day one. Essentially, D-Day becomes the starter's gun, if you will. There was a lot of preparation, as you know, that had gone into D-Day. You had to, of course, defeat the U-boats. You had to write down the Luftwaffe, prepare the conditions. And, of course, D-Day was much more successful in some cases than they expected, at least when it came to the casualties, which were not nearly as heavy as they thought. But they didn't have the kind of penetration in land that they expected, the kind of success. As a matter of fact, in hindsight, we kind of look at their first day objectives as being highly ambitious. In other words, the idea was that you wanted to be able to get the Norman capital of Cal, the city of Cal, in your hands by essentially nightfall. Part of this had to go down to the Allied thinking that they knew full well that when you're trying to pull off an amphibious operation, which is the most difficult operation of war without a doubt, that you have to absorb the inevitable German counterattack, which is going to try to meet you and drive you back into the channel. So the idea was to get in very quickly, peg out very defensible areas, dig in, and then absorb the German counterattacks, which they expected were going to unfold over about a two-week period. This was called the dogfight. And one of the big problems, of course, if you're a commander on the scene, like, of course, General Montgomery, who's responsible for the land operations under the overall command of Eisenhower, is you have to have a kind of a fingertip feel, as the Germans would call it, for the battle, because amphibious operations, as I mentioned before, are very delicate, because you have to come across the channel, you have to win the day, get on the beach, you have to stay on the beach, you have to build up, and then you have to expand and then break out. And what they'd learned in Italy was that it was very difficult to really set the dial at the appropriate level. And so, for instance, at Salerno, the Allies advanced too far too quickly and almost got thrown back into the Mediterranean by the Germans. So they became ultra-conservative the next time when they tried it at Anzio. And when they did it at Anzio, they didn't advance far enough inside into the territory, so the Germans were able to rope them off and wrestle them essentially to a stalemate. And Anzio became known as the Beached Whale. And so now this is one of the great fears within Allied High Command, is how far do you go on the first day? What is going to be too far and leave you vulnerable? Or what is going to be too conservative and potentially risk you being hemmed in to the Normandy beachhead? And so that's really what they're thinking is moving from D-Day into D-plus-1, D-plus-2, et cetera, as we go.
1: So that's the expectation. What's the reality? How does it actually play out on
2: the day itself? Well, the day, depending on where you are along the beach, of course, we know that Utah Beach for the Americans, which is the westernmost landing beach, was an incredible success. I think there were only three fatal casualties on that day. Omaha Beach, as we know from Saving Private Ryan and other depictions, was a bloodbath, but at the end of the day, the Americans were able to establish and hang on. Then you have the three other beaches, the two British, Sword and Gold, and in the middle of those, you have the Canadian beach, Juno. Sword Beach was the one that was supposed to be sort of the spearhead, if you will. And the British were supposed to be able to push up and grab call on the end of the first day. Unfortunately, German defenses in the area were a little bit tougher than perhaps they had imagined. And so as a result, there were some delays. And not only the British, but uh, even the Canadians did not punch as far inland as they had actually hoped to do. But with that said, they did make significant gains on day one and they were in solid for the most part when the Germans did counterattack on June 7th, the day after.
1: Why was there such a difference, a variation across the different landing points and the beaches. Is this down to the way in which Rommel had reorganised the defences, down to Vida Stan's nests clusters? Was it just the fact that some beaches were able to get through a little easier because it just wasn't as heavily defended, but then in some places there was a vast concentration of power down onto those landing points?
2: yeah it is i mean it's a function of many different variables in this case and some of it comes down to of course terrain you see or just the selection of a particular area which may or may not necessarily be strategically important at the time so for instance you know utah beach is open it's flat it's not heavily defended because frankly when you come off utah you're not really going anywhere except across the base of the Cherbourg peninsula But if you're in areas like south of Caen or around what became Omaha Beach, these are areas that are natural concentrations or or concentration areas with road nets that would allow you to move out and expand. So these were the things that, of course, the Germans concentrated on. Of course, there's also a question of troops. The Germans had, some people would argue, a very uneven talent when it came to the troops. Some of them were battle-hardened from the Eastern Front. Some of them were what they call the Ost troops, basically troops that were recruited or pressed into service. Others, as you know, some of the German commanders had said, had been sitting in France too long and had just got used to wine, women and song a little too much. So you never knew if you were an allied trooper assaulting the shore on D-Day, what you were going to come up against. And, you know, a lot of times the material defenses that you're coming up against are fierce enough, but it really comes down to the determination of those defenders. You know, whether they're willing to fight to their death or whether they're willing to put out a white flag very quickly. So in some cases, like Omaha, they were fighting essentially to the death. The same thing with Juneau. Other places like Utah and maybe gold were not necessarily as fierce. And then you get just a little bit inland from S.W.O.R.D where the British end up bumping into some pretty fierce German resistance. So it really, in some cases, can come down to the concept of fate or luck. It just happens to be where you are on a particular day and what's behind.
1: And it really does show you how fickle the difference between victory and failure can be i mean you pin it down to just the different training and personalities of the troops on those beaches whether or not they are willing to fight to the death or perhaps they just don't believe in that cause and they are far more happier to surrender i mean these sort of things aren't usually taken into account as much as they should be when devising military strategy
2: No, a lot of times there seems to be blanket assessments put out. In other words, if you're in the SS, then of course you will be elite and you will fight to the death. And that was not necessarily true all the time. Also, too, you can argue that the Canadians come up against the 12th SS Panzer Division in the first hours of the attack. And of course, they are green. They are green troops, despite the fact that they do come with the moniker of being a Waffen-SS Panzer Division. They are essentially fanatical young teenagers between 15 and 19, most of them, but they are led by hard-bitten veterans of the first SS from the Eastern Front. So you have more of a fanatical kind of unit than you really have a skilled unit, if you will. And then you have others. You have the 21st Panzer Division, which had seen fighting before in the war, which was highly skilled, etc. And then you have some of the others, like the 352nd Division, which was at Omaha, that, someone would argue, punched far above its weight class. In other words, it was not supposed to be as good as it turned out to be in the initial defense. So that's the kind of problems that you encounter when you're doing kind of blanket intelligence when you're trying to put that very difficult assessment on the performance of your opponent. It's the same thing, for instance, in sports. I mean, if you go off and you're playing a soccer match or you're playing, you know, hockey or baseball or football, you generally know what your opponent has on the other side. But day to day, you have no idea on any given Sunday how those people are going to perform, how they're going to actually turn up. You know what it's like on paper. It's another thing when the whistle blows or the gunfire starts. So that's kind of what we're seeing in Normandy at this point.
1: So they are able to, there are different varying levels of just how potent the fighting is, but they're able to break off the beaches and move through. They come together and they're able to dig in ready for this counterattack. Does this counterattack ever come?
2: It does, but it doesn't come in the kind of form that they were expecting. As a matter of fact, the allies, are, I argue, are kind of a victim of their own success here. In other words, they were expecting that counterattacks would come. This is the standard doctrine that the Germans employ. So the idea was that they would throw in various obstacles for the Germans. Part of it was the air interdiction campaign. In other words, you were going to use your tactical air power to destroy bridges and railways and road hubs and strafe everything that was moving. The idea being to slow down your opponent. The last thing you wanted was a coordinated counterattack by all German forces rushing in at the same time. If you could break that up and have them come in piecemeal, then you stood better chance of breaking those counterattacks if they came in in limited, piecemeal fashion. That's exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, the air interdiction plan was much more successful than we ever expected, or at least the Allies ever expected. And also, too, there's a deception operation, Operation Fortitude, which sows indecision amongst the German high command. Normandy's not a surprise, but the the fortitude operation, which is a massive deception operation, which has them guessing whether we're coming in Normandy, whether we're gonna come in Calais, or whether we're gonna come in another part of France, Normandy being one of them, kind of ties the hands of German decision making because they feel in their minds that this is nothing more than a feint. In other words, that the real attack is gonna come across the Pau de Calais, so therefore we can contribute some of our reserves but perhaps not all of them in a decisive manner, because we have to retain some around the Pas de Calais. So that is also playing in. And then, of course, you get the impact of local resistance. Local resistance has been primed for years to stand up, and when a certain code word is mentioned, which you've probably seen famously in the longest day, that's when they're going to go into action, and they're going to take part in the interdiction plan as well, slowing down the Germans. So basically, it gives you this breathing room, if you will, if you're the Allies, to get in on shore, go as far as you can, and then stop, set up, and absorb the attack. And one of the reasons why the Allies felt so confident was because you're talking about one of the most incredible arrays of naval gunfire or power that you have ever amassed in the history of the world, standing offshore, in addition to the greatest display of tactical air power that you've ever seen. So they were actually, in many cases, the Allies were welcoming this counterattack because they had full confidence that they would be able to break the back of the German panzers. And then that then would allow them to regain the offensive and keep moving on further into Normandy once this two-week period was done.
1: So is that how long it took to realise that the counterattack was over? Was it a two-week period of waiting in
2: the region and then ready to move through? No, actually, it was a bit delayed. Remember that when Montgomery plans the actual land campaign, he structures it over a 90-day story arc, if you will. So in other words, by 90 days, we're going to be at the Seine River. Now, one of the big problems is what kind of roller coaster ride will it be in the interim to get to those 90 days? So in this particular case, indeed, they were expecting it after two weeks and there were some attacks on June 7th. As a matter of fact, the Canadians were able to hold off a very famous one by the 12th SS along what is called the Oak Line, which was not too far from Juneau Beach. And there were other ones that started to come in. There's some famous attacks, you know, on the American sector, around, St. Mary Glees and Contantin and on the Continental Peninsula, and then, of course, around the town of Carentin. So the Germans are trying desperately to do this, but because of what I mentioned before, all the successes of air interdiction, fortitude, deception, the resistance, etc., they just can't arrive in that overwhelming strength. But one of the problems is, is this does not conform necessarily to Montgomery's vision of what is happening. And Montgomery is a plodding, methodical kind of commander. He is extremely cautious. He wants to make sure that everything is tied up before he acts. And that's fair enough. In my assessment, I think given what he is dealing with, I think that's the fair enough and most appropriate approach. However, he doesn't really seize upon that kind of fingertip feel. In other words, wait a second, the Germans are not here yet in strength. Let's push on. Let's grab something. He's really worried that they are going to show up. So as a result, the move inland then goes in a much more sluggish fashion than they expected. The Germans never really materialize in this massive strength so they can just defeat them in one giant, decisive battle. And now suddenly you're in a protracted campaign where the Germans are arriving now in more and more strength. They are starting to rope off the Allies in the Normandy Bridgehead, which is really quite something. So by the end of June, you now are faced with trying to break out if you're the Allies, and they do. They try this at Operation Epsom, which doesn't go anywhere near according to plan, and this then becomes kind of the main theme on the eastern part of the bridgehead with the British and the Canadians smacking their heads against an ever increasingly stronger German wall that's being put up around Caen. Meanwhile, on the West, the Americans have the job of trying to capture Cherbourg and the Cherbourg Peninsula. And Bradley's army, first the U.S. Army, is doing that. And where the whole complexion of the Normandy campaign changes is right around July 1st, After the Americans do capture Cherbourg and the Cherbourg Peninsula, the entire First Army has to pivot and turn south. And now there's great pressure on to speed up the process, to achieve a breakout in Normandy. So starting with the beginning of July, you see this massive pressure on Allied commanders to move on. And part of this has to do with war weariness in Great Britain. Great Britain has been fighting now. It's in its, what, fifth year of the war, and they're getting tired. Some of the veteran units that have fought through the desert and through Sicily and through Italy, who are now in Normandy, are not performing anywhere near as well as they expected, simply because they felt that they had done their bit, and it was time for others to take over. British manpower is also dwindling. They're starting to cannibalize other units to provide reinforcements, and this is a very difficult thing you compound that with the fact that just after d-day the germans start showering england with v1 rockets and now you have another political reason and military reason to push on because they want to capture all the v1 launch sites and then of course there's also the success of the red army starting on june 22nd on the eastern front the red army in operation bagration has destroyed army group center and they are grabbing headlines around the world whereas in normandy They're reporting gains in hundreds or thousands of yards in the eastern front. You're looking at 10, 20, 50, 60, 200, 300 mile advances on a daily basis because there is that kind of space on the eastern front. And the reality of the situation doesn't really occur to a lot of people. It's just the headlines. The Red Army is going gangbusters. The allies are hemmed in. And this doesn't sit well with high command for a couple of reasons, but most importantly is because FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States, has just announced he is running for his fourth consecutive term as president. So now, in the middle of Normandy, you now have a presidential race in the United States to worry about. And one thing I think we've lost in the historiography is that kind of pressure that's being put onto Eisenhower. And Eisenhower then pushes that down the chain to Montgomery. And now it looks like in mid-July, Montgomery is going to be sacked because of what some people consider to be underperformance. And of course, really what it gets down to is a big strategic difference when it comes to the approaches taken by Eisenhower or what he would like to see happen and what Montgomery is actually doing. Montgomery is using attrition just like they did in World War I, in the last year and a half of the war, starting in probably about 1917. The idea was bite and hold tactics. In other words, you are not going to be able to achieve a a smashing, great, decisive breakout without preparing the conditions for that, or creating the conditions. And that means entering into a series of nasty attritional battles, where basically it's kind of bite and hold, where you take a tactically enticing position from the Germans, as bait, knowing full well they're going to counterattack. And when they do, you grind them down and you destroy their reserves. And as you continue to build up, they are going to get weaker and weaker. Now, this doesn't seem to necessarily be understood, or if it is understood by Ike, he's not a fan of that approach. In other words, he's not about attritting your opponent to achieve maneuver. He's about maneuvering into position to destroy your enemy. So there is a complete 180 degree difference in their vision about how to bring victory in Normandy. Well, by this time, by the end of July, around the 25th, you see the competing systems, if you will. The Germans were very good when it came to putting together fire brigades. In other words, whenever there was a tactical rupture of the line somewhere, they could cobble together a battle group and throw it in. Whereas the Allies were not necessarily good at battle group tactics, but they were very good at struggling for elbow room and starting to slowly expand through using attritional type of fighting to the point where eventually the bubble bursts for the Germans. I mean, they had been putting in some solid counterattacks and plugging the lines all the way to July, but their kind of system for logistical support just could not sustain the kind of overwhelming brute force that the Allies were bringing to bear in Normandy. And eventually, the system just gave way. So when there was a breakout on the American sector, and the American sector on July 25th, 26th, and 27th, around St. Lowe, the Germans then suddenly had to respond to that. And that meant, over the next couple of days, weakening their forces in front of the British and the Canadians around calm. So a combination of them reacting to the situation, a combination of Montgomery's strategy and, of course, the tenacity of the men on the ground who have to carry this out. And, of course, when you're talking about the attritional struggles, you're talking at a rate that's close to what we see at Passchendaele in World War I. I mean, the infantry casualties were through the roof. Some of the frontline infantry units were suffering 94% casualties in certain attacks. I mean, it is a bloodbath. A lot of people tend to forget that the incredible price that was paid in Normandy was uh, extremely steep at one point. And I guess you could argue the breakout in Normandy came at just the perfect time for the Allies, because they were starting to, you know, run out of infantry reinforcements. Things were going to get ugly. And it just happened to be that the Germans couldn't react everywhere at the same time. And as a result, you couldn't plug every leak. And so as a result, the Allies ended up, the Americans broke through and ended up going down to a place called Avranche and then turning the corner there. Whereas the British and the Canadians continued their straightforward bash down what is called the Falaise Road. And eventually, the Germans ended up launching two major counterattacks, which, frankly, were futile right from the start. They were kind of like rolling the iron dice and taking your chances that somehow you'd score victory in Normandy. Well, basically, they ended up putting their head in the noose. And by the end of August, the Allies had destroyed the entire German army in Normandy, or essentially had it stampeding out of Normandy with its tail between its legs and inflicting as much damage as humanly possible. So Montgomery's great plan for doing this in 90 days actually took 76. And a lot of people don't realize this because of all the other problems that were going on. And a lot of it had to do with Montgomery's personality, the political overtones and the fact that there was a lot of infighting amongst the Allied high command. Montgomery was not a popular figure, not only with the Americans, but with his own, particularly the air barons who had been with him in the desert. They had felt that Montgomery had taken too much of the credit for success in North Africa, and did not necessarily share it with the tactical air forces. And so as a result, you had people like Air Marshal Tedder, who was Eisenhower's deputy, who had a hate on for Montgomery. And any time there was a setback or something went slower than he wanted, without a doubt, he was trying to put his knife into Montgomery's back, even to the point where he had told Eisenhower that the cabinet was ready to support the sacking of Montgomery if Eisenhower deemed it appropriate. And this was literally just before the breakout and, of course, the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler on July 20th. That was kind of the reprieve, I would argue, for Montgomery. In other words, why sack him now when it looks like the end of the war was near?
1: What caused the anarchy?
0: How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now?
1: Who won the Hundred Years' War?
0: Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk?
1: How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park?
0: And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman.
1: And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds.
0: We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today.
1: Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So do you think that Monty was vindicated or is it a combination in truth of this attritional tactic and the American maneuvering that helps overcome those
2: German counterattacks? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, it's a question of applying consistent pressure to the Germans. And that's really what they've done. And yes, as I mentioned before, the Germans are good at fire brigade tactics. In other words, trying to plug a hole here, trying to plug a hole there. But, you know, it's kind of like a sinking ship. If you don't get the ship into dry dock and fix the problems permanently, the ship is going to go down no matter how many holes you're trying to plug. You're just not going to have enough manpower and enough manpower to bail. And that's basically the problem with the Germans. They don't have a dry dock. They just don't have an appropriate dry dock to fix what is happening in Normandy. So in this particular case, there's a whole bunch of different things that conspire to leave, I would argue, Montgomery in a historiographical no man's land. In other words, it's very hard to come down and say, yes, he was a genius on this point or yes, he was right on this, because equally you could say that he made mistakes and the other. I don't know if the controversy will ever cease with him. A lot of it had to do with his personality. Uh, Very aloof, arrogant, insecure, but also he was also a very pragmatic kind of character. And if you take a look at what he perceived to be the instrument that he had in his hand, the British and the Canadians, I think he perceived that it was flawed or at least not as sharpened, perhaps, as he would have hoped. So I think he's very realistic. With putting his troops through what he believes they can handle. Whether that was the right or wrong thing in the end, that's still up for debate. But I think he was rather realistic. In other words, you don't want to go off and dance to the enemy's tune. And if you're getting into a battle of maneuver, your troops are nowhere near as skilled in a battle of maneuver as the Germans are at this point. So you better not dance to their tune. You better stay very conservative methodical, bite-and-hold tactics, set-piece assaults, colossal cracks, as Montgomery would call it. In other words, we are going to build up and then hit them with one big blow. It's kind of like being a boxer. In other words, I guess maybe later on, and I don't necessarily know if this analogy is perfect, but kind of like the way Muhammad Ali used to fight, where he would take the punishment on the ropes, tire out his opponent, and then just say, okay, you done? (laughs) And then he'd come off the ropes fighting. And that seems to be kind of the idea that he was doing. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that despite all these analogies, this meant men's lives. The men who were in the front line had to take the forefront of this, had to bear the brunt of these types of strategic decisions at the upper end.
1: And I think we forget that that term actually means something in this battle, the front line, because like you said, this is like the First World War in many ways. That attrition rate is almost unbelievable that in the Second World War and all the things that we're meant to have learnt in terms of our sophisticated tactics and strategies, we're still there in an attritional rate in the muddy, bloody fields of Europe,
2: smashing at each other, trying to get through. Yeah, and I think one thing we tend to forget is because of the fact that the Germans were able to essentially, maybe not tightly, but be able to rope off the Allies in the bridgehead by the end of June, early July, it meant that we didn't have a flank to exploit. In other words, the Allies could not get around. And so therefore, it becomes the Western Front of World War One, where you have to figure out a way of going through your opponent now one of the things of course that we have that we didn't have in world war one where we could pursue this kind of attritional strategy and know that eventually we are actually going to succeed is we have something like ultra where for years we have been breaking german codes air land and sea and we are able to enter into a bean counters war knowing full well that if we engage them that we are reading their messages, knowing how many reinforcements are coming in and knowing full well that they don't have the kind of reinforcements that they need. Instead of, you know, one division getting 5,000 reinforcements, they're getting 500. So you know that your attritional approach is working despite the fact that it is horrific at the sharp end, it's actually having success. So if you continue to apply that pressure And the fact that you're able to read the enemy's messages, you know, his hopes, his fears, his dreams, his desires, you know, you know where he's strengthening, you know where he's depleted. It's just a matter of time. In World War I, we didn't have that. Haig didn't have that kind of intelligence because everything he did, all the attritional struggles that they engaged in in World War I, they were hoping to be able to break through. But you had no way of gauging just how effective your preparation battles were on creating those conditions, that is a massive change in World War II when it comes to Normandy, because now you have a finger on the pulse of what's happening with the Germans when it comes to their reserves. So now you can pursue that attritional strategy, knowing full well that it's just a matter of time before it succeeds. When specifically, you don't know, but certainly that window is going to be a lot shorter than what we saw in World War I.
1: I know you've been through all the archival files on all of this and on your Twitter I see some fantastic primary archival documents that you post on there all the time. So I've got to ask, is this how the generals spoke about the war? Is this how a Monty or an Eisenhower would talk about it? Is it this disturbingly but perhaps pragmatically a mathematical equation? Is it just the economics of war? They know the end sum. They know what all of this is going to equal. It's going to equal
2: victory. (laughs) that's the big problem. Remember that the dirtiest word probably coming out of World War I was attrition, the one that I've used many times. And so as a result, you couldn't really do that. You couldn't use the term attrition, even though that's exactly what you were engaging in. The last thing you wanted to do was let anybody know that you were pursuing this. Because as a general, they would see that not as a strategy, but an absence of strategy. And that was one of the big problems is the ghosts of the Western Front are very much alive. And that's why, for instance, if you go back in the documents, you will see that Montgomery uses a series of euphemistic terms, right? Hit them for six. Write them down. You know, there's always something else. At the end of the day, it means attrition. It means killing your enemy at a higher proportional rate than you will suffer. So as a result, you know, that's one of the big problems with the historiography, something that we've never really come to terms with, I argue, in Normandy, is this is a straightforward attritional struggle that nobody wants to admit to, even though perhaps it's the only thing we can do, and the only thing that at the end of the day turned out to be the right approach. It's not glamorous. It's not considered to be the sharp end of martial skill, and it comes with tremendous amount of cultural baggage from World War I. So as a result, I think it's only now when we're starting to kind of put the pieces together and understand it. But again, part of the problem with Normandy is everybody's looking for the ultimate right or the ultimate wrong answer, when in reality it seems to be very much in the gray.
1: So it was meant to be D-Day plus 90, that was the optimum, that was the hope, despite the pressures put on Monty, but it takes until D-Day plus 76, a few days here or there, for victory to actually come. Would you argue that this is
2: the point that the war in Europe is won? Well, it certainly appears that way. Certainly that is the perception within high command by the end of the Normandy campaign. One of the reasons why we get something like Operation Market Garden. Arguably, if Normandy does not go necessarily in the same fashion, doesn't mean if there isn't victory in Normandy, but if it doesn't go in the same fashion where the German army is literally running out with its tails between its legs and there's massive destruction in the fallet's pocket, I don't think you get a Montgomery who's extremely conservative attempting something that is extremely bold in Operation Market Garden trying to take advantage and keep the momentum of this collapse going. You can also see in the diaries, uh, for instance, Miles Dempsey, the second British Army commander in Normandy, he has a diary that he keeps, and he refers to it as the Hundred Days, which harkens back to the last hundred days of World War I, when the Allies break out on August 8th in Amiens, and then basically it's a hundred days from there until the Germans collapse on November 11th completely. And so when they finally break out in Normandy, that's the thinking. The thinking is that this massive collapse in Normandy is going to lead to the overall collapse of the Third Reich. So by the time they reach the Seine River on D-plus 76, and then they're looking to move, they really do believe that the war could be over. Of course, it's very hard to gauge the will and the resilience of your opponent. And that's what they sadly they found out in the fall of 1944 was the fact that the Germans were a bit more resilient than they expected. And the Germans, of course, took one more big kick of the can in the Ardennes in 1944.
1: Yes, the war was most certainly not over. But Dave, thank you so much for giving us that broader context of what happened at D-Day, but most importantly, after D-Day, because as we sit here listening to this on the day After those Normandy landings, it's important to remember that for another 76 days, D-Day plus 76, they were still fighting in this region and fighting to
2: break out. Where can people learn more about this? Well, plenty of books out there. As a matter of fact, Normandy is probably one of the most (laughs) written about campaigns of all time there are some fantastic things that have come out over the years. Now, most of them actually are written about D-Day themselves. And in recent years, you have uh, volumes by Peter Catek Adams and James Holland and Anthony Beaver, who have actually tackled more than just D-Day and have actually looked at the entire campaign to a certain degree. You also have some of the seminal works, which came earlier. I mean, one of the best ones is C.P. Stacey's victory campaign which actually was written in 1962 or at least published in 62 and that's a canadian official history and it actually does a pretty good job at looking at the entire campaign more recently i suppose about 35 40 years ago you have carlo deste Decision in Normandy, which I still think stands the test of time for the most part. Russell Wigley's Eisenhower's Lieutenants. And then, uh, perhaps on a more um, narrowed focus, you do get some of the nationalistic, if you will, books that have come out. A lot of them have to do with Canadians. Just in recent years, you had, of course, the legendary work of Terry Kopp, who's been delving into Normandy for many, many decades now. And, of course, the seminal work by Mark Milner, who actually penned a book all about the German counterattacks in the days following D-Day. And then, of course, I also published a book in 2019, which was uh, kind of a micro-history, if you will. It does deal with the context of the Normandy campaign, but it focuses on the story of the Black Watch of Canada, who arrive right in the height of the stalemate in early July. And they spend about seven days in some of the most intense combat you can imagine, rivaling what, as I mentioned before, happened in World War I. And in those seven days, they suffer over 94% casualties, including being wiped out on that 7th day, July 25th, 1944, as they tried to go up barrier ridge. And the title of the book is called, I guess quite obviously, Seven Days in Hell. And that's available everywhere. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on any good bookstore. will have it. So there's plenty out there for readers to sink their teeth into, without a doubt. Plenty
1: well get out there go and buy seven days in hell and dave thank you so much for coming on the warfare podcast you know you're always welcome
2: tom my pleasure great talking to you